I tried to go full on out after it, David, and I knew right away, regardless of approach or innovative, if culture isn't willing to embrace it, culture wins 100% of the time. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good morning, friends. David Wright here, and I'm your host of Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business Podcasts. And this morning, I'm joined by Tim Brown. Tim, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you, David. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Tim, tell our listeners about your current role. Where are you as it stands? Well, I'm the Chief Information Officer for Johnson Financial Group. We're a community, large community bank in Wisconsin. We've been around for about 50 years, and it's a family-owned community bank, but very progressive in terms of how we look at facing our clients and servicing them. In fact, that's how it got started. Sam Johnson, who is our patriarch, no longer with us, he started this bank back in 1970, mainly because all the big banks in Milwaukee didn't want to bank the smaller guys, you know, all the, the smaller businesses. So he was on the board of one of the big banks and he put in his resignation, put a double wide on a corner. And here we are 50 years later, still serving the community. And that's our purpose, is really to be here for the community, continue to grow in Wisconsin. And it's been a fun ride. So I'm very grateful to be here. Let's say it that way. I love that. I love having organizations on with that have that mission in mind of, of serving our communities and the, you know, the small businesses and the, you know, all the, all the individuals that need help and financial services. So kudos. We like to start the episode with one piece of actionable advice you'll look to give our listeners today. There's so many things that I've learned over the years. I think in, in the spirit of disruptive innovation and, and all the rest of that, I think the one piece of actionable advice is seek perspective. Let me tell you a little bit of a story about what that means to me. My son is 25 now, one of my sons. 25 and he's special needs. He's got a cognitive disability. But how that started was he was a, at three years old, three and a half years old, he had a kidney disease that he was battling. 
And the only way to really fight it was to have high dosage of not only steroids, but chemo. And he's a little guy. In fact, I have his picture here. This is what he was back in the day. This is his name is Aaron. You see him. He's got his little Superman outfit there on. This is what he looked like for the story. So he was getting his, uh, his treatment for the very first time. And we were walking into a little pediatric infirmary. When he and his mother and I walked through the doors, it was a dark place. It was very quiet and it was very, very scary. It's a scary place. And we were very uncomfortable. This is the first time that we had actually taken him to actually get his treatment. And we were very uncomfortable because we actually had to leave him there for about an hour while we talked to the doctors in another floor. And one nurse came up and his name was, well, we know him as Nurse Jelly. Nurse Jelly came up and he says, don't worry about it. We'll take care of him. And so he took Aaron and sent us on our way. Well, as you can imagine, we were just didn't know what to expect. So we go back through those same doors about an hour later, and the whole room was transformed. There was light, there was energy, there was SpongeBob playing on the uh, TV and way too loud for anything. And then there's a bunch of kids playing on the ground and all the rest of that, where before the kids were very quiet and getting their treatments and some crying and all the rest of that. Well, this was totally transformed energy throughout the whole room. And we thought, are we even in the same room? And then we saw Aaron over there playing and being his loud little self, you know, again, just this big, right? And just being loud and himself. And so we went up to Nurse Jelly and we said, oh my gosh, this place woke up. And he goes, yeah, thanks to Aaron. Aaron came in and opened up the uh, blinds, started putting Punchbub on the TV and pretty much made this a play day as opposed to an infirmary. And he totally transformed the room. And his energy was obviously contagious. And that was just because he was naively, his perspective was this was playtime. This was not a treatment time. And that perspective really kind of helped me understand that it doesn't require a title or it doesn't require, you know, large power or influence. Any one of us can transform a room. Any one of us can take an opportunity to really look at a situation in a totally different way and then have others jump on board. And that perspective that he brought to that scenario is something that I keep here. And that's why I keep this little cutout here is it reminds me every day that I need to be able to keep a broader perspective, a different type of perspective whenever we look at solving business problems, whenever we look at technology. Whenever we look at just interactions with ourselves, that perspective is one that I would always say, just keep that open perspective, be positive, and know that everybody's in it together. And, you know, I think great things can come from that. So that's my one takeaway. I have many others. <laughs> many. Oh, we'll, some we'll of, get some into a them. More painful. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I'll tell you perspective and acceptance. I mean, those are two of the most important things, even in life for me. I mean, I can only imagine how difficult that must have been. I know we were talking offline. My daughter just, she was playing in the sprinkler. She went on the jungle gym. Long story short, she, she slipped. She fractured her, her tibula. 
I was spotting her even. I saw it in slow motion. I couldn't get there quick enough. She slipped right through the monkey bars. And it was like a rubberized floor even, but she fell on it the wrong way. And, and it was heart-wrenching. And I felt guilt and shame. Logically, like, I know that I'm an attentive father. And I know that I prioritize my, you know, mental and spiritual health, my family, and then growing my business so I could support my family in that order. And I still felt that way. But as I processed it and I talked with other people, because part of me gaining perspective involves having people I trust who can, I can check in with, right? And, and who can hold up that mirror and show me, okay, I'm not a bad dad. And on the flip side, I'm grateful. This is temporary. You know, she has a cast. She is very healthy overall. We have a loving home. And that's the perspective shift. I went from shame, fear, guilt to gratitude in, yeah. in 24 hours. That's a great story. I think that's something that we can all really embrace a lot more because I think if we come to that point of gratefulness, as a lot of times, especially in a lot of the turmoil and chaos today that we all experience is, you know, what are those nuggets of gratefulness that we can go and really latch onto those? Because we can get inundated with, you know, all the strife and the challenge that we all feel, especially in, in today's times, especially as with economics, you know, start to change a lot for us. So it impacts lives. But, you know, you're grateful for who you have as a family. You're grateful for what you've been able to accomplish in the past and really just the family and the love and, and the people around you is where you center on. And as long as you keep that focus and that perspective, you know, you, we can get through a lot of things. I can tell you that. And as business leaders, I've heard, I mean, you brought it up, CIOs that have been on the podcast prior to you have brought it up. I mean, technology works, right? And so often it's about the people. And when it comes to touching, moving, inspiring these people to fulfill the business vision of the organization and, and help these communities and, and so on, having this level of kind of emotional intelligence and being able to share this experience with others, I think is crucial. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about how you started out and, and how you got to where you are today. Mine's more, probably more of a traditional IT guy story. I graduated from Texas A&M and I took on a job. I thought I was going to be more of an entrepreneur, but I went to corporate, right? I went the corporate route and joined on with USAA. And this was quite a while ago. I ended up spending 31 years with them where I thought I was only going to be there for a couple of years and then go on. But then you find out that you're grateful for where you're at. And I really was grateful for being at USA. They treated us very well, and continued to treat their employees well. What I really loved about it is the forward thinking of that company. And they still do that to this day looking at how can we serve uh, the members better is the way they look at it. Very similar with Johnson Financial Group. And that's what attracted me here is how can we serve our community better? And how can we be there when our clients need us most? And when you have a purpose like that, that's where innovation thrives, right? If that purpose is the center, then as long as you have trust and integrity and tolerance for mistakes and wrap around that purpose, that little model is gold. And so when I started out, you know, I was a software developer and then moved my way up into 
more of the cutting edge type of technology as an executive, and then ended my career actually in the innovation lab at USAA and overseeing the IT group there. And along that journey, those journeys, I found that for me, I love being on the cutting edge of technology and actually paradigm shifting because it was less about technology and it was really about shifting a paradigm of how we think about solving a problem and to the point where you get very uncomfortable about the paradigm. And then from that, all sorts of wonderful things. Once you get past fear, there's just a light on the other end of that side. And that's what really motivates me and why you know, I enjoy what I do here at Johnson Financial Group. We uh, look at problems a different way. We have a lot of just cleanup work we've got to do for over 50 years of, of technology acquisition. We've got a lot of simplification that we're doing in, in modernization. But at the same time, we're looking at how we delight our clients and customers as well. So it's really, it transcends any kind of business, any kind of industry, that purpose wrapped with integrity and trust and tolerance for mistakes. Once you have that, you're in great shape. Yeah, I mean, that's the part of the, the formula for innovation is that acceptance, creating a, an environment where you can fail, integrate feedback, create those feedback loops. That's awesome. We touched on that, that piece of actionable advice before, but what are some other of, of the most important things that you've learned in life and what was life like before learning it and after learning it? One of the biggest lessons that I've learned over the years is humility as a leader. A lot of us out here are, you know, high achievers, overachievers. You may, you know, hear that term and just, and that is what drives us. But that for me, it took me on a journey where I thought I knew a lot. And I would depart wisdom as an executive onto others, right? I'd depart my wisdom. But it wasn't for a, a director of mine who actually had, we had a trusted relationship where one day he walks in my office and he shuts the door behind him. And I thought, am I in trouble? And apparently I was in trouble. His name is Ryan. And he says, you know, Tim, why don't you trust us? And he was talking about the team of 20 management that reported into me. And I thought, what do you mean, Ryan? Of course I trust you. What, what, what earth are you talking about? And he goes, why do you have to be into all of our details? You're in every detail and you're going to, I said, well, I thought I was sharing all my experience and wisdom. And he, and he just looked at me and he goes, we got this. You have bigger things to be thinking about. You don't need to be thinking about the day-to-day -day operations trust us with that, and then help us with the vision and where we need to head. And that really threw me for a loop because then I looked at my calendar and once I got his feedback and then I started getting out of all the details, I didn't know what to do. I mean, <laughs> what the heck am I, am I going to do? I have all this time now. So I filled that time by what I called management by snooping around. You know, I just would walk around and talk with people and all the rest of that. And then I started to understand a little bit more. I needed to play at a different level and I needed to trust that my team had it, which they, by the way, they did. And oh, by the way, even though they were newer to the game than I was, they were actually better at some aspects of it because they brought that different perspective that I didn't have. 
if I would have continued to manage as opposed to lead from that standpoint, we would not have grown as strong. So that humility moment of Ryan talking to me and having the trust to be able to give me that feedback was, it allowed me to grow as a leader tremendously. Then I was able to fill my time with the right things in terms of overall coaching, helping set vision, working better with business partners. It had actually helped the whole organization of 300 people actually do much better. So that moment really helped me understand that come from a point of humility and curiosity. Don't always think you have the answer. And that really helped me grow as a leader and as a person, because that actually helped me in my personal you know, relationships as well, as opposed to always trying to solution. Uh, sometimes you needed to be able to be a listening ear and to uh, you know, seek to understand as opposed to offering up answers all the time. So I say that I still feel humbled just by telling you that story. It's, I think it's probably the most important lesson that I've learned. And, but it's still something you have to work on. You know, it's right. not like once you get it, doesn't mean that you can execute it all the time. So it's something I work on every day. Love that. Another great tidbit. It resonates with me as well. I had a moment like that in my career a little while back where I, I realized I was on that striver's wheel, kind of losing perspective, kind of getting a little trapped in ego, honestly. And there's not a lot of, for me, a lot of joy there, really. It's fairly empty. I came across a, a book too, like around that time, Arthur Brooks wrote from strength to strength. And he talks about kind of what you talked about. He calls it the striver's curse, where there's, mm. you know, the fluid intelligence curve and the crystallized intelligence curve, you know, over the course of our careers, like the fluid intelligence curve actually, you know, starts to diminish. And like, if you keep on striving, you're, you're going to get less and less satisfaction out of out of that. And it's just like you said, kind of moving into that new possibility where you're leveraging all this invaluable experience that you've garnered over the years, but in a, in such a way that you're, you know, like you're saying, mentoring and, and letting these folks who now are, you know, getting the newest certifications and, you know, learning the newest trends, like letting them flourish while giving them the experience about everything else that they don't know so that they can kind of step up in their career. It's, I mean, it's great. That's the power of perspective, right, David? That's exactly the way it is. And I have a smaller group here in Johnson Financial Group. We have a, a mighty team of 50 IT folks. When I first got here, IT was kind of the back office, infrastructure, just engine room kind of guys. They weren't really at the table to talk about business transformation. And a lot of times, the only control that the IT team had was to say no at the time. That's the only control they had. Otherwise, it was a, hey, we bought this piece of software. Oh, and by the way, you have 30 days to integrate it and get it installed, blah, 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 right? So a lot of us in the IT industry have those types of, of war stories. And what was important when I first came in was not about the technology. It was really about who we were. What is our identity? Because I actually am the first CIO for this 50-year company, and I started back in 2019. They really didn't know what to do with me. So we had to create an identity, and a part of that identity was, hey, we're here to serve. We need to be a trusted partner. 
that is who we are as a trusted partner, but we have to earn that trust. And so a lot of what we need to do is just focus on good blocking and tackling. And then that blocking and tackling will earn us the credibility to be at the table to talk about you know, how we can be partner with the business to help the business to flourish. And thankfully, you know, three years later, it's always the conversations are still going, but we are in much better position to be able to help the business and not just be a, let's say, a no or a help desk that, you know, doesn't respond and all the rest of that. We're getting much better in terms of our service model, but that was the power of perspective that we had to change. And hopefully that will continue to flourish for us. And it's very much an empowerment because innovation starts at the root level. It doesn't come from top down. It comes from the bottom up. So the best ideas, the best understanding of what problem we need to solve actually come from people that are interacting with the clients on a day-to-day basis. And so you have to listen. So it was really important, the empowerment, the identity, all the rest of that, back to your point, those perspectives had to change. And so far, we're doing good. We have a lot, lot more to to accomplish. There's still some things that we need to work through. Had some conversations this morning in terms of our service model that we need to tweak, but we're in a much better position just because it was nothing more than getting a different perspective. We talked about a lot about lessons, about perspective. Any other, like, fail, I mean, we've all had failures, right? Any other failures that stick out in your mind over the course of your career that you were, were able to, to learn from that we haven't already talked about? Now, which one do I pick? (laughs) Uh, I'll pick one that talks about culture. And I think we can all understand that. So there was a time at USAA when I was with them, I was an executive and we were trying to learn how to deliver product faster because we were probably taking anywhere between a year and 18 months to deliver projects. And this was in the early 2000s. And my CIO tapped me on the shoulder and he says, Tim, I I need you to come forward and we're going to need you to help us devise a way to deliver projects faster. And we called it extreme makeover because in IT, you know, you have an engineering type of discipline. It's, you know, we've all heard about the waterfall from requirements, from analysis, design, construction, implementation. So we've all done that. And you move this giant scope through the whole thing, right? And 18 months later, you have the scope and then you found out that you got it exactly wrong. That's a typical project. And we needed to fix that. So I introduced this thing that was somewhat new and they had this manifesto that came out in 2001 and it's this thing called Agile. I started introducing Agile in 2004, 2005. Well, you would think that I was walking around cussing If I was to say agile, that was a cuss word. It had a visceral reaction to a lot of our engineers at the time. And this is, it was, I think USAIT shop was probably around 2000 people at the time, way bigger now, but there was just violent, just, oh my God, you can't, there's no way that's cowboy. You can't do any of that. So it was very clear to me that you could not push that too. and, And God forbid you use the word scrum. You could not even (laughs) use the word scrum back then. It was the weirdest reaction, but we had to avoid that word. And so we tried to go, I tried to go full on out after it, David. And I knew right away, regardless of approach or innovative, if culture 
isn't willing to embrace it, culture wins 100% of the time. And so our first shot at Agile failed dramatically, but we got some nuggets out of that failure. That failure told us a couple of things. Okay, yeah, we can adopt Scrum right off the bat. We're just not ready emotionally for that. We're not ready just conceptually around that. Culture is not there. So what did work? Well, we found out that, oh, you know, if you dedicate some people to a project, they can actually get things done faster. Because we were pulling projects were being pulled matrix people in a snippet here and a snippet there. And literally, you would go into one conference room. And for 20 minutes, you're trying to understand and recalibrate from the previous meeting into another project of where you're at. And then by the time you get productive, you're done and you're moving on to another conference room in another meeting for another project. And then no wonder we didn't get things done. So what if we just focused and dedicated people? So that was number one. And then, oh, by the way, can we co-locate them? So instead of being in different parts of the building or whatever, can we all just co-locate together to facilitate that communication? So we went with that and oh my goodness, we were able to deliver something in 30 days. Oh my God. You know, just by doing those two things, we were able to get product and value out the door in 30 days. But the culture still was not ready to embrace agile. But that's kind of what we did, some of the principles of it and get feedback and all the rest of that. There's a lot more to agile than that. But we kind of took some of the basics of that and said, okay, the culture can handle this. It can handle that. So what that great failure of and that visceral reaction and my credibility took a hit because of all of that. This is a cowboy guy. He doesn't care about quality, blah, blah, blah. We were able to get these things done. And oh, by the way, that's how the organization actually moved forward was dedicating and co-locating people for projects. And we were able to get, you know, 360 days down to 170 days. And eventually when we did embrace Agile and we were ready for that, which, oh, by the way, wasn't until seven years later. And that seven-year time frame is really kind of a time frame I look at for culture bending. It takes about seven years for a culture to bend. Finally started to embrace true Agile. And Scrum was no longer a dirty word and all the rest of that. But it had to be tested and proven. And through that failure, make sure you learn because that learning was invaluable for us. But long story, I apologize about that. But that one big failure, that influenced me to obviously to this day. I mean, it, you're, you're absolutely right, though. Like culture is always going to win, basically. I mean, win out, rather. I mean, you need that to be there. Yeah, don't um, they say culture eats strategy for lunch? I felt that. <laughs> <laughs> and you were ahead of your time, man, introducing Agile Scrum in, in 04. That's awesome. We had to do something. What was really nice about my CIO is he gave me a clear purpose and objective. And even if the, the way or the way we were proposing to introduce it didn't work, we knew what the objective was. And, and as long as we aligned to that, we were in good shape. Very cool. All right. So I want to talk a little bit more about Johnson Financial and kind of get into your vision and some of the key initiatives you're focused on. Before that, I'd like to ask favorite book or literary piece, blog, right now or, or all time? There's one that I really have liked in the past. It's Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. Uh, that was a, a great one for me. The one that I'm reading right now, it's called The Psychology of Money. You know, I should know the author. I have it on my audio, but I was listening to it this morning on the treadmill. But 
that psychology of money is fascinating because that's the way I, I look and being in the financial services industry, usually we lead with product. And this is a perspective of a relationship that we each of us have with money, just like you have a relationship with food. Mm. And sometimes you go to that when you're needing support and comfort and all the rest of that, hence comfort sure. food. Money yeah. is very similar. You know, we have psychoses around money, whether it's impulse buying, greed, whatever the case, you know, there's these concepts that has really been helpful for me to understand the psyche of our clients and our customers, both commercial because companies have their own personality and relationship with money, whether conservative or risk-taking and so on and so forth, very similar type of principles and concepts that you manage your personal finances with, right? So it's interesting philosophy, and I've, I'm just into that, so I can't really comment on the book, but the author is really shaping it, forming it very well, but it's called The Psychology of Money. Very cool. Yeah, Morgan Housel, is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Yep, thank you. Thank you. So Tim, uh, I mean, and we already kind of started talking about it already, but just why don't you expand a little bit on your vision for Johnson Financial and some of the key initiatives you guys are, are focused on as a, a community bank that had IT kind of siloed for a number of years? I mean, this is a, a story that we see all, all the time. It's not, it's so common. So you're kind of leading the charge. Talk to us a little bit about what that looks like you know, over the course of the last couple of years and then kind of where, where you are today? Well, you can imagine if you don't have a discipline of IT engineering or technology engineering, the house can get a little bit messy. And what that looks like is you can't see it, but right behind my monitor is a architecture of all the systems across our banking business, our wealth business and insurance business. And it is a cluster. I mean, just it looks like a teenager's room, you know, <laughs> my teenage boys, you'd walk into that room, you think, what the heck just exploded in here? And you'd find old sandwiches from 1920. And, you know, it's just crazy, crazy messy. And, you know, and the smell and oh, my God. Anyway, it's kind of like that in a way, because over time it gets built up, right? You make decisions, you patch it in, you just try to keep going, patch it in. And so all these little patchwork decisions that have happened from not just business-led, but also technology-led, it just became untenable in that, you know, we use the term technical debt. That's your technical debt. Well, 50 years of that, that's a lot of debt that grows up. So the first thing we had to do is we have to clean that up and we have to simplify. And we're right now on year three of cleaning that up. And the way we're doing it is we're starting with the glass, what I call the glass, it starts with your experience as a client with us, whether that's self-service or using our CRM or any of those types of branches. We had to start there because we were starting to lose relevance in our clients' eyes because of that patchwork and some of the old core systems that we have right now. They just couldn't keep modern, right? And others were with larger, let's say, checkbooks the bigger banks, they could fix those problems by throwing money at it. We didn't have that kind of luxury. So what we actually had to do is we came up with strategies to say, okay, can we at least hide the room a little bit and clean it up on the front end for our clients so we're relevant to them? And that was the first thing because we there were certain basic financial needs our commercial clients just weren't able to get. So we were losing business. So it was a real thing. So once we cleaned that up, 
And we're still cleaning that up to a bet, but now we're somewhat relevant. Now we're going to that next layer, actually going through the room and cleaning up business process, operational modernization. We still have these old core systems, banking, especially community banking. That's our biggest complaint in the industry is we have this, this dead weight on the back of our trailer that's just moving our car around and we can't be agile. We're barely able to control where we want to go because we have these systems that were built in the 70s and 80s, some of them. And we need to be able to clean all of that up, plus all the scar tissue that's around it. So what we do is we hide it through an integration layer. And this is something that we had to do at USAA. And we have an integration layer to integrate all the businesses. So we can do a couple of basic things is, can I see David the same way across all of our businesses, as opposed to our bank sees David as David Wright. And then we have Dave Wright. And we actually have a different email address in our insurance. You know, we had no idea who you were. Single source of truth. Who is our truth? Who is David? So we needed to solve that problem. So we put together, we call it the golden record, the golden record of who David really is started there and put that, and we use MuleSoft as an integration platform. We put it in MuleSoft. And that journey was also a big journey for us because that was a big paradigm shift what development really was. And then we had to build that core, who you are. And then now we're working on business process and trying to streamline all of those. And starting with our higher priority businesses first, down to the lower priority businesses in terms of margin, in terms of client expectations and experiences. So we're in the cleanup phase. It's going to take, you know, probably another couple of years before we get through this first phase, but it's a paint the bridge, David. You're always going to be, you know, having to enhance. I mean, the world moves quick. We just want to keep pace with the world right now. Uh, We don't need to be ahead of it. We just need to keep pace and we're getting there. That's why blocking and tackling is foundational. Just knowing just ITIL frameworks, just service models, just the basics of what we need to do, how we deliver technology. So we're blocking and tackling while we're delivering. And that's a difficult dive. That's a high difficulty of dive. And the team is actually doing it phenomenally. So I'm going to brag about my team a little bit. They're doing fantastic. Our business is doing fantastic because they're embracing this as well. And it's been a, a big journey for us. And it'll continue to be a journey. But we're not trying to be fancy pants on a lot of stuff. Like, we're not talking AI. We were talking AI when I first got here. I said, we're not ready for that. But I'll say within the next six to nine months, those conversations will be ready to start having again. So those are things that we need to, uh, to do. And I know a lot of other community banks are in a very similar kind of a format. I think the biggest challenge for us, David, and this may be leading the question here in the future is, what is community banking in the future? And that is a question that we don't have to answer right now, but it's a question that we need to be aware of. So as we do make decisions, we can understand what community banking really is and where it's going. And that's one of the biggest paradigm shifts I think our community of community banking is starting to wrestle with is who are we in the future to our clients? Are we still relevant in our local physical boundary communities? Or do we need to think about community in a different way? Right now for us, we're a Wisconsin community bank. We still have a, you know, a purpose and a need for all the rest of that, but that could, that could morph over time. And I know there's a lot of community and mid-sized banks out there that are actually 
experimenting with that. And we're kind of keeping a keen eye on that while we focus on cleaning up our house. And or, right? I, we, like we've seen some banks doing kind of expanding, like you said, into more innovative technology after they go through that kind of initial transformation to make the existing client experience highly personalized, radically convenient, kind of really allowing customers to interact with you as their you know, partner the way that they want to, when they want to, and that sort of thing. And then as a business, how can we leverage our knowledge as a 50-year institution to build something maybe that could be, like you said, kind of address a broader community, perhaps even as a, a separate brand, right? That's what we've been seeing where like the financial institutions are kind of starting their own, almost like fintech, essentially, yeah. organization kind of side by side. And yeah, I mean, it's very cool to see. I mean, and it's great that you guys are grounded in such a cool culture. So I think that would really play into doing something like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. All of our forces right now are about getting ourselves modernized and that's what we need to be doing. But I know our community, our industry is really trying to experiment and figure that, are we a banking as a service? Do we need to be able to start looking into fintech, which we actually keep an eye on that. I partner with our CFO and we look at opportunities of where that might be able to, let's say, do a leapfrog over something and be able to move forward a little quicker than we thought. And are there those opportunities out there? But at the same time, the broader question is, is there disruption in our industry that's coming our way? One of those things we're watching is embedded finance. So that's the concept of you go to retail, you go to Amazon now, and they have financial assistance all through the process from credit to even payday lending. They have all sorts of things that are going crazy out there that usually that the relationship that we have with our consumers, they would come to us first. But the convenience and the positioning of embedded finance, especially in a retail setting, that convenience outweighs the relationship sometimes. And I've heard it said a couple of times, another way to, to look at it is, I know you have a couple of daughters, you're young, but let's say they get to be 13 years old, have a party, pizza party. Well, are you going to go to Luetti's down the road and have bring all them and sit down and wait an hour? And Because you have a relationship with that and they have really great pizza. Or are you going to get on your app and hit Domino's again, which and say, just reorder that pizza and have two of them come here and you're going to have Domino's pizza as opposed to bringing them all there. So even though you have a relationship with this local restaurant that's fantastic and the product's wonderful, for certain situations, convenience outweighs the relationship. So how do we find those balances? And right now in the retail space, they're banking on convenience. They really right. are. Well, and especially as, and I mean, we kind of, you know, touched on a number of my questions that I was going to talk about, some of the challenges you guys are facing, I'd like to see if there are any more best practices you guys are following as you scale some of the innovative technologies that, you know, we're seeing in the industry, especially as, you know, this newer generation that is, they want that, they want those self-service options. I mean, it's going to be just paramount, I mean, to long-term viability of an organization. David, I'm a little older than you, I, I would suspect, but our generation has this misunderstanding of the younger generation. We always call them the millennials. And we love to throw anything that we don't understand as, oh, well, the millennials are, you know, so that's easy for us. It's, it's kind of like, darn kids, get off my yard. 
kind of thing. You know, that's the attitude. If you actually talk with even the Gen Zs, and my boys are 25 and 26 right now. So if I talk to them, they still want what we have enjoyed through our era, and that's a relationship. I mean, there still is a need for relationships. So yeah, I'll go to the app, but if I need advice, I need to talk to somebody. So transaction, yes, I get it. Totally transaction. We need to make it self-service. We need to make it convenient now. But when it comes to advice, that's where I think we have a leg up on any kind of fintech because we're going to be able to be there to have the conversations of, hey, I'm struggling paycheck to paycheck and I want to send my kids to college. How can I make that happen? So an app's not going to help you. Amazon certainly is not going to help you. So we do have a place and that is the value that we offer is to have that relationship, that trusted relationship, to offer up both convenience and relationship to provide the right advice as you experience life. And that's, that's really what we need to be. And we still are product focused. So, you know, I'm going to out ourselves. We do focus a lot on product because we got to keep growing, but, you know, we don't have to be crazy about it. But at the same time, you can't focus on product at the expense of understanding who our client and customer is. So we struggle and we work through that balance as well. We don't have everything figured out, but just like any other community bank, as long as we can find that right mix, that optimal mix for whoever we're serving, that's the art behind it. That's very artful. 100%. Love it. Any other um, best practices that you and your team are following that you want to share with our listeners? I don't know if there's really, I mean, all the best practices I would mention most everybody else would probably hear in terms of the the tactical thing. I think the only uh, observation I'd offer up is really understanding the corporate culture and in terms of how to get things done. As IT folks, we, we revel in problem solving. We love to be able to solve problems, which is great. I mean, it's something that is invaluable to an organization, especially like a financial services institution. But to get things actually done, I think is really important. And that actually requires a network, you know, an internal network or even an external network to get things done. It really requires partnership and relationship and these things that Typically, IT folks aren't comfortable with, especially if you're engine room and that kind of thing. But we actually have to get better at the human side of what we do to be able to do what we do even better. I mean, in terms of our best practice is how can we understand not only our client, but, you know, our culture of getting things done? That's huge. And again, that just through observation, talking with people, having lunch. I know we're doing this and we've had COVID remote working. We do have remote working here, but face-to-face does require, is required to help us continue to have that type of networking. And whether it's face-to-face virtual or face-to-face over bread, breaking bread or having a beer or coffee, that is invaluable to be able to get that network of trust. And if you have that network of trust, you can get anything done. So I think you know, from my perspective, it's one of the best practices is really shifting our focus of just solving problems, but solving bigger problems through the relationships we have with anybody in our organization. So that's super important. I 100% agree. I, I was at Salesforce World Tour last week on Thursday, and one of the CIOs that present mentioned that how, or CTOs, he, he's a facilitator, you know, and that resonated with me because as a consultant, 
you know, so much of what we do is really talking to these operational, financial, in the case of healthcare, clinical stakeholders, because they have a vision for what it could look like. And they even may understand to a certain extent how technology could help facilitate that, just because it's so prevalent right now. And then it's our job to really draw that logic path from point A to point B and and bring all those people together and roll them in what's possible. So yeah, that absolutely makes sense to me. It's just a huge part of what we do as well. Absolutely. Okay. So as we come to a close, Tim, we like to ask if you could go back five or, or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? That's a great question. I know you had it on the pre questions, but you know, I, I thought about that question and just depends. If I go back 10 years, I would shake myself and say, you don't know it all. That would be the first thing. If I go back five years, I would have to say patience, you know, intolerance. And so patience being in this context is you have to move at the pace that if you're on a stream, it's going at a certain pace and you have to move with that pace. If you try to swim upstream all the time, you exert a lot of energy. You exert a lot of energy. So go with the flow. You can kind of go to the side and all the rest of that and save your energy for when it's really needed, when you get to a point down the stream and you can so have, be patient. Don't just look back and try to swim back upstream and catch it. You know, be patient because another wonderful site or another wonderful relationship or opportunity will come down. So having that patience on that from that perspective is good. Uh, I'm not talking about how quickly we move to keep our, up to our clients. I'm really talking about opportunities in terms of broader perspective on things. So, 100%. I mean, because we can only control what we can control. And if we're trying to control everything or, or lacking that patience and acceptance, like I mentioned before, you're, like you said, kind of expend energy unnecessarily when it could be. And usually for me, when I've done that in the past, it hurts my. It could hurt my personal relationships. It can hurt how I interact with other people. I'm not as present in the moment. You hit the nail on the head. And so the optimal word here is control, right? We all feel we need to, I was a control freak. And they did some kind of psychological study and quadrants and all that stuff. And I was uber control. And I love the way you put it, because if you lead with a controlled fist, as opposed to an open hand, you're only going to see so much. But if you open the hand, then things come to you. I think that's better put is to release control and not think you have control over everything, but allow for it to come. And I, I like that actually better than patience because it communicates better is, is sometimes you need to just release control. So I think that's fantastic advice. I'm going to use that word instead of patience in the print. So thank you for the conversation on that. That's You made me think of it just now. So I, I really, I appreciate it. I get so much out of these conversations. I built my book list this way. I, I you know, <laughs> I'll level up my leadership game. So this has been fantastic, Tim. It's been great to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, it's been great talking with you. And I wish everybody the best out there. Uh, it's a journey for all of us. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks for everyone listening in. We'll, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes.
This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.